friends, and welcome to Northern Static, the show where Canadian composers tell us about the state of their art. I'm bassist and composer Pete Johnson, coming to you from the western reaches of eastern Canada. On this show, I talk to composers from a range of musical scenes to find out how they make their music, why it sounds the way it does, and, most importantly, what they think we should be listening for when we hear it. In this episode, I talk to composer and bassist Rob Clutton. Rob's music freely mixes jazz and experimental music techniques with folk melodies create a kind of backwoods chamber jazz. Rob seems to be everywhere all the time, but lucky for us, he's in the studio with me now to talk about the consistent mysteries of his music. A chat with Rob Clutton, coming up next on Northern Static. Welcome to episode seven of the show. The concept for the show is simple. I sit down and talk with composers about their creative processes, and they play some compositions of their choosing as examples of what they do. Think of it as a group listening session, where the creator of the music is there to guide us through how and why they make the music they do. Today's chat is extra special for me, as Rob has been an important mentor for me since I moved to Toronto nearly 20 years ago. As I looked around for music that excited me, Rob was nearly always in the bands that lit my ears up the most. He's a virtuosic bass player who seems to have found new sounds on the instrument every time I hear him, and his compositions always seem to have come from one of those other universes that no one told you about. At the center of Rob's music is the double bass. His solo bass recordings and performances demonstrate a relentless commitment to low-end theorizing that has made him an in-demand collaborator for many musicians, dancers, and theater artists. It's a technical and musical challenge to play even the simplest melody on the string bass. Yet, when I listen to Rob, I always forget that he's playing the bass. I just hear music, and I find myself in sound worlds that obscure the technical challenges of playing the bass that I know all too well. Rob's compositions create much the same effect as they seem to transcend the instruments on which they are played to nest directly in listeners' imaginations. Most of the truly inspiring music I've heard in Toronto has featured Rob as a common denominator, including the group's Drumheller, Lena Alamano's Titanium Riot, the Rob Clutton Trio, Rob's primary compositional vehicle, the Clutter Tones, and countless ad hoc improvised concerts. Rob's solo bass concerts are deeply moving and surprising affairs, and I try hard not to miss these two rare events. As we like to do here on Northern Static, we'll start the show with a little bit of Rob Clutton's music and then get into our discussion. We are blessed that Rob has released two albums of solo bass music to date. As the bass is so central to Rob's compositional aesthetic, I think it wise to start there. So here's a piece called Taken Over by the Hounds of Reason from his 2005 solo bass record, Dubious Pleasures. the show joined here today by rob clutton bassist composer improviser life appreciator welcome rob thanks pete so you've been involved in the improvised music scene for a long time and composing a lot too um so i'm wondering when did you start composing um i feel like there might be a few different answers to that question like i i composed pieces for guitar when i was in high school uh, like fingerstyle, solo fingerstyle guitar pieces in the style of uh, sort of wannabe Leo Kotke kind of tunes. Wow. And that was that. And then I, I think when I was a classical music student at U of T, I started composing jazz. <laughs> tunes 
when you were studying classical music, you started composing jazz tunes. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would be, I was also listening to jazz and a lot more than I was listening to classical music. I would be assigned to go listen to classical music and I'd go listen to Cecil Taylor or something. And yeah, I guess listening, I mean, Dave Holland was an important influence both for playing the bass and for, and gradually uh, as a composer kind of wanting to um, check out some ways that he composed things or so he was a bit of a model around being a composing bass player right yeah for me too mm -hmm. his music appealed to you? Well, the thing that uh, appealed to me at first was his sound. And so I looked, I listened for that sound and, and there was some of the music I didn't always get, or it was, it was kind of wilder than I was expecting some of it. Uh, like Conference of the Birds is one of my favorite records. And I think at first it was something to get used to, but as time went on, I guess it was like a approach to incorporating improvisation and finding ways of having open form elements in composed music and having composed elements to free improvisation. I mean, I guess maybe that's a bit later, but and but you're studying classical music. Was was there was there something that you were taking from that, or were you running from it? I'm probably running from it, but I was also taking from it. I mean, uh, I always liked Beethoven, but I got tired of how we were expected to learn about it, I, I think. And maybe some of the ways that music is, was taught where it felt like there was a great emphasis on harmony and no emphasis on rhythm. So I was looking for other models, I guess, at the time. So you mentioned earlier you're writing fingerstyle guitar things for your for yourself to play primarily. Yeah. And when did you start writing for other musicians to play, or or did you sort of work on a solo repertoire for a, a while? Well, I mean that was just that wasn't like a serious, extensive body of work that I was doing. Um, that was like just the when you say when did I start? That was like the meager beginnings. Um, I guess in the early 90s, probably, I started writing and I started leading a band in 94. And so that was a band that I started writing for. Maybe I, I tried writing a bit earlier than that. Sporadically, there was a band. What was that? There was a band called Bark, Bill Brennan, Alan Hetherington, Kenny Kirkwood and me. When was that? That was maybe 91. But yeah, my, my own and started in 94 and that was with Tim Posgate and Lena Alamano and uh or no Lena subbed for Chioko at first but Tim and Chioko and Anthony was the first quartet but Lena and then Lena and Kenny joined when Chioko moved to Berlin yeah 94 was the beginning so did the composing sort of connect to leading a band like around around specifically okay I got a band I gotta give them something to do or or had you been thinking compositionally before that? I had been thinking compositionally before that, but more maybe looking for an outlet, I think, yeah. What kind of pieces were you writing for that early group? I was looking at um, different, well, it was like different ways of approaching form. So some, uh, I mean, sometimes it'd be, there was one tune that was a blues, but it had a complicated conceptual introduction and then eventually turned into a blues. Other than that, there weren't too many closed form pieces. There was usually some mm -hmm. kind of narrative structure of moving from one area to another. 
So what do you mean by by closed form? If you, I guess, you're like contracting song, with like a blues, cyclical like, form, yeah. a cyclical form, yeah, yeah. Like I guess, um, you know, the album Tender Buttons, like that's covers that period of the '90s. So yeah, having having different events, I guess, that happen and transitions from one way of playing to another. What were some other, were there other examples you were drawing from, from that? Other, I mean, we talked about Dave Holland too on, um, on there's all kinds of that stuff on Conference of the Birds, um, different ways that he puts the tunes together. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, Oregon was a pretty huge influence. Like, I don't know if I ever set out to write an Oregonian type tune, but just as a listener of music, they were huge. was it that appealed to you about what they did um it just seemed kind of magical uh maybe the way it combined un- sounds that i was i had never expected before and the first time i heard them i was i was sick i was in high school i had mono and i was sleeping most of the time so and then my brother brought home this oregon record and i was i woke up from a dream and i thought i was still dreaming hearing this uh music it's stuck with you ever since yeah and when you put it on now, do you de- instantly develop a fever? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. So you got to be careful. Gotta... It's a good fever. <laughs> it's <laughs> so a they... benign fever. Yeah, because they seem to, there's there's a lot of um, almost folk style and modal kind of tonality stuff in, in a lot of your music that that uh, that they cover too. I know you're interested in a lot of folk music mm-hmm. for sure, but they seem to delve into that territory. Yeah, and combine bit. combine that with like Bill Evans influences and um, Bill Evans, the piano player and classical and free improvisation. So yeah, there's kind of a wide scope that they, particularly that one, I think the record was called distant Hills and very great bass playing. Yeah. As well. Yeah. And very different from how I play, but beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe you could tell me a bit about some of the other uh, folk music influences that you have. Uh, well, growing up in Burlington, I guess there was a, a little bit of a scene that my brother was in, which was a, a kind of a bluegrass scene where interesting young teenagers looking for meaning, of, like meaning in, in the suburbs and kind of turning to this uh, American acoustic music. So it was through them that I got inspired to listen to and play bluegrass guitar and and that's how I got into playing or playing the bass eventually because I heard Dave Holland on a bluegrass record. And yeah, so bluegrass was a, an important one. And then eventually, years and years later, realizing that that had a history and came from music that preceded it, like uh, old time music and Harry Smith's anthology of American folk music and music of the 20s. You, like you've explored a lot of that, those sounds in a um, in a more improvised context over different tunes. I think that's what that's what I hear. Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of the interesting like modality hmm. in the uh, in in some of the a lot of the melodies. 
Interesting. <laughs> but, but bringing some uh, different approaches to improvising to that material, mm -hmm. not bluegrass style right. improvising. Right. But in some ways kind of bluegrassy melodic content. Mm -hmm. Maybe. That's mm -hmm. how I hear it. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, I'm sure that like when I go to compose a melody, I don't think about where it, like trying to compose a bluegrass melody or something mm -hmm. like that. So and those influences are in there. So I'm sure you're hearing something. I did spend some time. And when I, I had a study grant in 2003 to go to Chicago and take some lessons with Ken Vandermark and uh, walk around. And um, I played a lot of Irish melodies. I was interested in exploring, like trying to find a way. I guess this is kind of an ongoing thing left over from classical music school of trying to find ways of experiencing music that weren't through harmony. So I was try and trying to find a way of experiencing pitch primarily through melody as opposed to through harmony. So, yeah, I was just, and I thought Irish melodies would be a good kind of, uh, well, I thought they were good melodies. So I, I played Irish melodies every day on the guitar. You just had a book of, of <clears throat> melodies or yeah, a couple yeah. of records? Yeah. Okay. Do you still do that? No. Okay. <laughs> You've moved on to Scottish melodies? No, I just sit around. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can take me through a little bit when you are in a, working on a composition, what your, what your process might be, or, or if you're working on a collection of tunes for a record or something, uh, you got a kind of discipline around doing that kind of creative work. And I don't have a, a, like an ongoing discipline. I have different, I fall into different uh, patterns at different times. So there was like in 2012, there was a time when I was writing a 16 bar melody every day. Um, and then in the next year I tried to write a four part piece that was contrapuntal in some way, but maybe not, not in intricate fugue or anything like that, but it's some kind of four part thing. And I tried to write one of those per month. I don't really have a set habit. Yeah. But those are interesting seem little problems you set yourself for right right for a little while so what what was it about the 16 bar melody like was that was that a productive yep and i think um we might listen to one of them later um or something that came out of one of them um so like a sketching process kind of yeah or yeah and it's something that can become the foundation for a group to play around and how about the four part counterpoint I guess uh, on Ordinary Joy, there are examples of both of those. All the tunes that are named months in Spanish are the four-part things. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. Hmm. See, I'm glad we're having this little chat. Right. I'm learning so much right. <laughs> about the music. It, just in what you've been describing, it's it, your real focus on, on melody primarily, in different ways of moving melodies. Yeah, melody around. and rhythm. I guess rhythm at different times. I went through different phases of being uh obsessed by resultant rhythms trying to make like making a piece starting with saying okay it's going to be about three against five and how do you what's the resultant rhythm and what can i how can i construct a piece starting with that as the basic thing what does resultant rhythm mean well when you combine it's a i guess it's a one way of talking about a polyrhythm so I don't know who used, uh, maybe I learned that at U of T, resultant rhythm. Maybe it's a classical music uh, term. But if you have like a two right. against three, that's a resultant rhythm, which right. is the result of combining and whatever. So you're not telling me that as a bass player, you're not as interested in harmony as other instruments? I am telling you that. Weird. Yeah. Yeah, but I like harmony. There's nothing, you know. I mean, clearly you think a lot about improvising, and, and I think all the music viewers that I know has that as a pretty core mm -hmm. core part of it. Mm -hmm. um, have you written through composed stuff? Yes. I wrote, I mean, I wrote a few pieces when I was doing a master's in composition at York, assigned pieces like a piano piece and a string quartet and a vocal piece and a wind trio. Um 
There's one, I mean, there's a solo bass piece on Dubious Pleasures that is almost completely composed. There's just a little bit of improvising, and it's the longest piece on the record. But, yeah, there's still a little bit of improvising. So that's a clear priority for you. Yeah, it's um, kind of, it's my favorite thing to do, so. How do you navigate the relationship between the two? And it seems like you have different ways of structuring it for different for different pieces. Is that something you think about when you're writing a piece, like uh, as a place to start? Um, not always as a place to start, but it's, yeah, it's always a kind of preoccupation or interest, like a... And to interest in, I go through different periods of finding, taking more interest in form and how improvisation can be a musical element. Like I used to think improvisation should be considered a musical element in the same way that pitch and dynamics are. If if you're going to compose something for improvising musicians, then taking into consideration the unknown element of their agency i guess is pretty interesting for me you've written a lot of solo music as well as group music like how writing and improvising in a solo piece um does that feel different to you at all in some cases i mean there are some things that uh that i've gone from there are group pieces that i've turned into solo pieces and vice versa um yeah i guess the different the different the obvious difference is that with group pieces you're looking at relationships of different improvisers and kind of thinking about how people relate to each other or so that's not, that's not there with the solo solo piece there's the relationship of the player and the instrument and whatever material i guess what about the solo pieces like um like it's an ongoing project for you the solo the solo double bass music seems to be a very deliberate compositional project yeah how do you think about composing for solo playing I haven't composed anything for a while for a solo bass. Um, I'm probably going to be doing some of that in the new year. So that I don't have a kind of off the top of my head, what's happening now kind of response to that. I went through different phases. Yeah, I went through different phases of having my solo bass practice not just be completely improvised or... I went through a phase of thinking it was important to always to just compose and play com- compose pieces and feel like that was the like the relationship was between me and the bass and the the material and that that was a, an important element to have and then I left that behind and I've been mostly playing improvised mm-hmm. solo bass when I play solo bass. Well, yeah, I mean, because because the, the flip side is you you've been part of a a lot of kind of long long-standing groups for you know whatever 20 plus years some groups right yeah. uh, so collaboration is clearly a really important mm-hmm. part of part of what you do and certainly your current group the clutter tones is a long-running collaborative uh effort what role does collaboration play when in your composing process well the collaboration is a primary element in composing for the clutter tones um and it happens in different ways it happens in the way of like what I was talking about having elements of the music to be unknown or determined by the other player's agency. So that's a kind of collaboration that I might be aware of as I'm composing, leaving space for people to create or providing context for them to create. And then there's um, the collaboration that happens in rehearsal or on gigs where we're trying pieces Um like one tune on Ordinary Joy, I think we played it for maybe it took seven years of revising to eventually get to the version that's on the record. And that's sort of like trying things with a band and then recording rehearsals or gigs and then going back and, yeah, making changes. So it's a collaboration that is sort of central to the compositional process in that way. Right. So you're going back and and thinking about what went right or what went wrong or whatever, and trying to yeah trying to weed it out yeah or and do you guys talk about it in rehearsal? Yeah, sometimes yeah yeah different and there's different things like um, well like Tim Tim likes playing banjo so he'll you know he he encourages me to write music for banjo 
Um, so that's a certain kind of influence in the music, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then Ryan, one time Ryan said, you know, early, like this is early on, but I, I'd just been writing instrumental music and Ryan said, you know, I like singing. Um, why don't you write some vocal music? Hmm. Add, add some songs. So now kind of half the tunes have song, have words, mm -hmm. um, things like that. Interesting. And this, this group's been going for a long time. And, and how do you feel that the, the voices of the players are integrated into the compositions? Or are they? Well, they are. It depends on the composition. But um, they certainly, I think they are. And I don't know how. I don't know exactly the answer. Right. So much of your music is very, is very focused and, um, and, and very generous to the, to the listener. I think that there's, there's sort of time to think about stuff as, as a listener. And, and, um, how do you see the role of the listener in your, in your process? Do you think about, do you think about that? I think about myself as a listener. And so it's complicated because I guess there's a continuum of listening and performing and composing. Um, and each informs the other. And as a composer, again, like my, I end up revising things and that's based on listening to recordings, but also listening is kind of informing all of the playing we do. And in terms of, um, composing for some abstract listener, like a, an imagined listener. I don't know if that comes into it so much. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about your putting yourself into the role of the listener by going back and listening to the, or recordings of performances or whatever, and allowing the pieces to, to change through shifting your own perspective on it. Mm -hmm. Maybe does that, mm -hmm. does that sound like what you're saying? Yeah. And it's confusing because I, well, I guess I sometimes think about people in general and wonder, I mean, that maybe there isn't such a thing as people in general, but different people would have different experiences listening to my music. And I know people, people that I know have had uh, surprising responses. Um, like one musician who's like, you know, he's an improvising musician. He heard uh, the Claritones record Ordinary Joy and, and had a, just couldn't figure it out or he just, you know, didn't get it at all. And eventually he heard the band live and it made a difference mm. to him. So I think it can be music that I experience in a certain way might be somebody else might hear it so differently that it's hard to make assumptions about what people are going to hear. Mm -hmm. I've often felt that a lot of Improvised music is is as visual as it is oral. Like watching hmm. is not just the energy of live performance, but something as well about just watching people play instruments in ways that mm -hmm. are unorthodox or mm -hmm. whatever. There's an athleticism to it, or a, a kind of just visceralness to it that that happens live. So maybe that's maybe that's part of it in seeing mm -hmm. seeing the band live. Um, not that that band does all kinds of extended technique -y kind of things, but, but it's in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's part of it. Yeah. I think also, well, also there's, I mean, even just, um, listening to something more than once or maybe any, any music has its own, what's that word? Cultural competence or something like yeah. you can develop <laughs> by getting to know something. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good chance to uh, to listen to a few tunes. Okay. Um, maybe you've brought something along that you'd like to tell me all about. All right. What do you? Uh, where shall we start? Maybe we shall start with solo bass. Solo bass. Okay. Do you have a tune in mind? There's a tune called uh, "Formal Garden." All right. It's on dubious pleasures. Let's get the DJ going here, and uh, we'll hear "Formal Garden." All right. Dubious pleasures.
formal garden given the title can you tell me um, a little bit about what the formative ideas were for the piece yes i can please do that okay <laughs> i wrote the piece in uh chicago in 2003 and it was originally a piece for uh a band called jazz story it was a group piece a quartet with uh guitar drums trumpet and bass and um the ideas had to do with um so there are different sections that uh, people can improvise with that have different kind of parameters, but the whole piece is built on a kind of um, resultant rhythms relating to seven, seven and three, seven and five. Well, no, I think it's all seven and three. So there's, um, I spent a lot of time working with uh, different groupings and, and things and playing with, Another so another thing I did that in that period was write melodies every day and write try to write play around with rhythmic ideas every day. Um, and there's this uh, there, I lived near a park and I would go for walks in the park. There's this area of the park that was called Formal Garden, and so I had this idea of different uh, areas to hang out in. 
And uh, so there are little kind of um, melodic cues that would take a person, if you're playing in the group version of it, you would play a melodic cue that would take you into the next section. Uh, so a soloist might be improvising over an area and then play a, a cue to take you to the next area. Hmm. Which would, I guess, and the idea was that it would be modular in the sense that there would be these different areas, but it doesn't necessarily always go in the same order every time you perform it. Right. Um, so with if someone plays a melody, they can the the melody can cue. There's a melody that cues a, a, a certain section, and then that way everybody knows. Oh, we're going to that. We're going from D to B or something like that. Right. So they're auditory cues. Yeah. But obviously, when you're Playing it solo, uh, yeah, it was a different. More mapped out what what order they were going to go in. I don't remember. Hmm. Perfect. I think, but yeah, it was less of a obviously less of an issue. It was more uh, trying to find ways of uh, moving from section to section that worked as a solo player. Mm-hmm. And did you? Is it notated? Did you write it down? It's written down. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I wrote it. Um, so I was taking some lessons with Ken Van- Vandermark, and uh, so I originally wrote it in these parallel, like one one line would be in concert that or bass bass clef for me to play, and the other line with the same material would be in uh, a transposed. I think um, maybe he was playing clarinet in some of the lessons, so it'd be B flat or E flat. Was there th- particular things out of working? with him that you're working through in this piece, like um, that you can sort of connect back specifically to suggestions that he had or, or, or concepts that you were working with derived from your lessons with Ken. I think the idea of um, having a modular form with, with cues might've come from him. Um, Yeah. Like he had, he had this idea that there are four kinds of form, I don't know if I might be putting words into his mouth, but so there's like cycle form, narrative form, modular form, and non-linear forms. Hmm. Um, I still don't really get the non-linear thing, but uh, I was interested in like kind of, it seemed obvious to me that most of, a lot of my stuff was either cyclical or narrative in the sense of either being song form or moving from A to B to C, you know, kind of progression of some kind. Um and then the idea of having these things, these different elements, not necessarily be in a fixed order, but be able to have access to them and vary from performance to form- performance was interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we'll have to ask him about the nonlinear. Uh, what yeah, like one, well, one, I think that might have something to do with conduction when conduction comes into it. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll leave that for another... uh, Sure. (laughs) The world of conduction. Yeah. All right, so we're going to hear an ensemble piece from the Clattertones record. Yes. And this is called... This is part three of Leeways.
All right, so that's Leeways. I, I imagine the, the title is somewhat because of the special guest artist it playing is. along with the clutter tones here. Mm-hmm. Lee Puiming. That's right. Playing the piano. Mm-hmm. So this is a multi-movement piece. We just heard one movement. So what can you tell me about the, the structure, the connection between the movements or the character of the movements? Um, part of the idea of the title and of the piece is... Um, wanting to write a piece that featured Pui Ming, but also kind of featured us getting to know her in her ways or uh, finding out how to collaborate with her. Um, And so there's Mm. different settings. Like the second movement is Lena on trumpet and Pui Ming on piano, and that's the whole second part. Um, The first part has synth and guitar and piano. Um... And her part is improvised throughout. In in the part that we listen to, I'm... Oh, I guess I, I could talk about the part four and four and a half. Please. Uh, where there's banjo and then improvising synth and piano. And then in part four and a half, there's uh, singing um, with written parts, kind of sparse written parts for the rest of the band. Um... And the vocal part is the melody and the voice is improvised, but there's preset words. Yeah, so the structure is around instrumentation and different different combinations of people. Yeah. So that one seemed to have um, everybody playing at different at different points. Or yeah. Like all so the, the, yeah. The, with the way that one's structured, is that it's uh, there's a bass part, um, and there are a whole bunch of fermatas at different times in the bass part, and the fermatas. Uh, signal that anyone can improvise. Um, hmm. So that's the structure of the piece. And with also the overriding thing that Puiming can improvise at any time. Right. So the piano can... Yeah, the piano is a free, radical. Free, free ancient, yeah. Yeah, interesting. So it seemed to be um, that particular recording uh, seemed to be a real focus on texture and, and timbre and the way you guys played is that baked in materials or that's just how this particular performance turned out or, or maybe i'm wrong i think that's how this particular performance turned out yeah it, like that could be quite different every time but it seemed to be some really great um yeah playing with timbre and timbral matching particularly between the the synth and the and the trumpet i right. felt like they were right just yeah chasing each other in a fun way they have a thing that way yeah <laughs> <laughs> So what was that process like where you're bringing a, a, a new voice to the existing group and, and it seemed like everybody else was sort of used to playing your compositions in a particular way and then, then there's someone new? It was an interesting challenge. Yeah, it was really, really fun. Um, it was a, this piece was a challenge partly because I had been intending to write it uh, in the spring and I got sick and didn't just didn't get the energy to write it. And so I ended up writing it over the summer uh, when I was away. And and so we didn't have a chance to rehearse it very much before the recording. So normally in my normal process of revising and rehearsing and revising and so on, uh, that wasn't, that wasn't available to me really. So, I mean, I, I, and I spent quite a bit of time with the material. It's kind of, kind of a combination of some folk, elements and a 12 tone row matrix um those are the two main sources i guess but i think it's still and it's still in progress in the sense that uh it's from like as i listen to it i'm I'm hearing things that i i like or you know i i think i probably i don't know if i'm answering your question i'm not really answering your question you're telling me about the music that was my question (laughs) tell me about the music tell me about this piece (laughs) Well, I think like this part, and then there's, there's, yeah, there's things that I'm still not sure about. Like, uh, I don't really like the way I play some of the written material. So I don't know if I'm just going to throw it out or, uh, or if I'm going to practice <laughs> so that I can play it the way that I'd like to be able to play it. Right. So this could be a bit of an anomaly in your practice if, as you haven't had a chance to revise and review it, but yeah. you, you know, you went into a studio and did it. That's right. So it might take some getting used to for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
But I like the structure of that part. I'm not going to change that much about it. On your the previous Cladotones record, do you feel that the pieces are are complete? So I like what you're talking about here, where you're still tinkering with this one, even though you've already recorded it. But on ones that you say you worked on another one for seven years, like does the does that impulse to tinker um, stop? Yeah, it more or less stopped with that one. Uh, there were some things that changed about it because in the process of recording it, I did, even after we recorded it, I added something. So that one has vocals on it. It's called Bison. And we added, uh, when Ryan did the vocals, I also asked him to add a, an extra little offbeat synth click because I felt like, um, I felt like it would be a nice addition. And, and then that, because he's also improvising at that point, I can't, we couldn't do that in performance. So then the piece changed in performance where we would find, uh, I asked Lena to pat her foot and then we found a tap dance shoe for her to wear <laughs> <laughs> while she would pat her foot for that one piece. So yeah, it did change a little bit, but then I don't think it'll change much more. Right. <laughs> okay. You know, it's just some folks are perpetual tinkers. Yes. With, with and this, I, uh, am, with this I am somewhat like that. Okay. <laughs> Always tinkering. Yeah. Um, so I know you do a lot of other, um, you're involved in other art forms in lots, lots of ways, um, dance and theater and, and the like. So how do you see your music in relation to the, to other, other art forms that are around or that you're, interested in i don't know always the answer to that question i do find it very inspiring to work with dance and and uh theater and i love reading but i don't know how it relates to reading well can you can you can you put your finger in any way on on how ways of thinking about things from dance that you maybe you've brought to your music because i know you've worked closely with dancers with this with the clutter tones music especially but if there's elements of dance that um that you've worked with in, in creating music? I don't know if there are any specific um, on-the-surface things that I could say. Uh, I guess coming to be aware of a kind of kinesthetic awareness or the fact that there is such a thing <laughs> um, informs my bass playing. I don't know if that informs my composing. It may to some degree. Uh, I think being inspired by dance has informed my composition in terms of uh, just kind of thinking about consciousness or like the first time I went to a, an Amade on Robinson workshop and it was like a dance workshop and, it, but, but she invited people who weren't dancers to take part. And so I was in an alley blindfold being kind of led and, and there was an advertisement for the workshop that it would be psychedelic. And I was sort of curious as to how that would manifest. And then it was kind of um, that process and then taking off the blindfold and kind of the experiencing movement and experiencing myself in reality. It was kind of mind opening or mind altering um, in a way that it was quite inspiring. Hmm. So that, that kind of thing and, and, you know, taking solo improvisation dance workshop with Don Carlton. It was also uh, kind of mind altering in a, in a sense. Um, but how it directly impacts my composition practice, I couldn't tell you, I don't think. I mean, you have work with dancers and having some of your music choreographed. Yeah. Is that the, is that the right way to say it? Yeah. Choreographed too. I don't know what they say, but I, yeah, I, for my vinyl release, Don choreographed uh, an, uh, uh, a, a set that was like the the same length as the the records or I, I guess because it was a live performance it was a bit, a bit longer than the hmm. LP we take a little uh, zoom out a little bit um, to think retrospectively a little bit what, what do you see as having been some of your main artistic challenges when you're starting out as a composer and is there any way that these challenges have changed over the years or how how your work has changed I think um, when I started out, it was a very different scene in Toronto. So in 94, when I was composing for a small sort of 
so-called jazz group. It was, um, it didn't feel very similar to anything else. Whereas now it feels like there's, well, there's a, a lot more free improvisation going on. There's a lot more um, people doing things where they're combining free improvisation with composed music. And maybe that was happening then too, but then I just didn't know. But it does seem to me like there's a huge change in in the scene in Toronto. So that is different. And then having having played with some of those same people for so long, um, there are there are sort of advantages to that that are kind of unknowable, I guess. Yeah. I think it's a really important point to think about the the scene and how that has shifted or opened up or whatever to, mm-hmm. to, well, I would, I would argue that you've been one of the main instigators to cause that opening, to make it, to open up into new ways of thinking about improvising and composing. But that's important to think about. I think the, what this, what's happened in the, in the scene and how, how the relationships that you've developed have um, changed the music mm-hmm. or made space for the music mm-hmm. or something. So I think we'll, Wind things up a bit. <laughs> I'm not helping you. So, <laughs> yeah, thinking about the the changes that have happened in the scene, is there is there things that that you would like to do? Is there is there musical vision you have you haven't been able to realize quite yet because of technical or financial reasons or something or something that you really would like to do? Yeah, there are some things I'd like to do, but I don't know. I mean, it'd be nice to have some kind of company, like a interdisciplinary creative company or something like that. That would be fun. Like, um, what what kind of disciplines would you like to have? Well, I guess dance, visual art, uh, music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like there might be some more more work to be done in in terms of my improvising with dancers or composing for dance or something like that. I haven't really done, I haven't really specifically done very much composing for dance. That would be a fun thing to do. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe that's something right in the future. To work with, uh, work mm-hmm. with some dancers. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can try and make that happen. All right. Somehow. I don't know any, if there's any, uh, uh rich patrons out there in uh, radio land, I got a great way for you to spend some money. Help Rob Clutton with his dance music interdisciplinary project. It all started here. Rob Clutton, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Pete. Wicked. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. That's the show, friends. Much of Rob's music exists in recorded form, and I urge you, dear listener, to seek out any record on which Rob is playing. The fact that you will find so many choices for listening is proof of Rob's skills as a leader and his desirability as a collaborator. You can find more of Rob's music on his website, robclutton.com, and on Bandcamp. The content and sound quality of the show is the sole responsibility of me, Pete Johnston. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this episode. More importantly, tell your friends to have a listen. You can find out more about me on SoundCloud, Bandcamp, or on my website, petejohnston.com. For some reason, I'm not on any other social media platforms, so I'm counting on you, modern people, to help spread the word about this show. Close it all out. Here's a piece of Rob's called Porch, performed by the group Drumheller, which features Brody West on saxophone, Doug Taylor on trombone, Eric Snow on guitar, and Nick Fraser on the drums. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for episode eight, where I talk to composer Allison Cameron. Bye for now. Ha <laughs> ha
Thank you.